Okay, good morning, everybody. December is finally winding down. Um, I don't know if you felt it, I have. Looking forward to the summer, to things slowing down just a little bit. A uh, few things. Uh, the walkers are here. Are they not? Are they coming? There they are. I kind of I gave them a, a warning, but um, I was somewhere saw one of the saw an Aporia Gazette and noticed at the front page it says that the Gazette wins two first place awards in KPA's Awards of Excellence. How impressive is that? Like, can we? And Ashley like got what? You got an award second place for editorial writing, so that's really cool. Because as followers of Jesus, we want to do everything we do with excellence. And I think that's really cool that you guys represent uh, the Lord with excellence in the way you do that. So just wanted to, to give you guys a shout out. Kylie, Kylie's back there. Kylie, I just want you to know I sent you a text message, that's all. Um, <laughs> if you didn't see. <laughs> compassion. We do have the compassion table. We talked about this last week. I know some of you took home packets and were thinking about it. Um, if you're still curious about it, encourage you to step back there um, and check that out afterwards. That's a really great ministry. And then one other thing. We were talking um, as a staff, and we're, we're what? Almost five months, getting close to being starting six-month point with our reading through the New Testament. And you heard a few stories of people having lost, like, their, the reading plan. So we have some of those back at the information booth. You can grab one of those on the way out. Um, if you feel like your group needs a refresh and if you missed the really silly video at the beginning, uh, please don't come for second service to watch the silly video. But um, there is a card that's on um, the chairs of just some ideas, things you can do to kind of as summer's coming to refresh your group to get some new energy. We are in the middle of John, or still in the early part of John. The book of Acts is coming, then we're going to be in the epistles. So really want to encourage you to, to kind of recommit with your groups and recommit to being in the New Testament. Um, you can always start again wherever you are. So um, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 6 today. So if you want to turn there and keep your finger, we're going to be in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. Um, and, you know, throughout, I think, all of our lifetimes, we find ourselves, all of us at some point or another, in impossible situations, right? In 2009, we found ourselves in an impossible situation. Um, we, had to, we had to move from our home, um, where we lived for years and years and years on Congress Street. Um, and it was just the right time, even family size-wise. And we were not in a place financially where we could do that, really. All those years of living on financial support, we just didn't have the financial means to make that. And so it kind of looked like an impossibility. It was necessary. There were five of us, three teens. Um, we needed a place big enough for the family. We really wanted a place close to campus that was large enough that we could have do ministry with students, that they could walk there. And, um, but I tell you what, just the, the financial thing to us really looked insurmountable. Not only that, at the time... We, when we kind of found out we were going to have to leave, it was really close to when we'd already pl planned on a vacation and paid some money on a place. And like the timing, just nothing about the whole thing seemed good. And it looked to us to be very, very impossible. Um, I'm just curious, how many of you have ever found yourself in an impossible situation? I'm sure we all have. Have you all ever found yourself in a place you felt was impossible? So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Jesus is going to deal with a very impossible situation. I think there's a very important thing that he wants us to learn from the story. 
Um, before I get to that, there was a book many years ago I ran into by John Miller called The, the Question Behind the Question. And he says that we make better choices when we ask the right questions when something happens. And he said, frequently, our, our approach to like an impossible situation, it's a negative reaction, and then we ask negative questions. And he says, when you ask a negative question or the wrong question, you, get, you will get the wrong answer. And so in the book, he's trying to convince us to pause for a moment when I encounter a negative situation, and instead of asking the negative question, learn to ask better questions. Because if I ask negative questions, I get negative answers. If I ask the right question, I'll probably get the right um, the right answer. And he, one sentence in that book that's really key is he says is the answers are in the questions. So if you ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. But if you ask the right question, you'll get the right answer. And that's really important as we turn to John chapter 6. Um, we're going to be looking at a conversation Jesus has with his followers, especially two of them, Philip and Andrew. Um, and it's centered around an impossible situation. And it's centered around an act um, that we know an event as the feeding of the 5,000, one of Jesus' most famous miracles. And I want to set it up before we read it. It's the one miracle that occurs in every gospel. It's the only one. So it must have been very memorable to those 12. It must have been memorable to Matthew. It must have been memorable to John, who were of his 12. It must have been memorable to Peter, because Mark was recording Peter's story. And Luke was just gathering, interviewing lots of people. And if Luke thought it was important, it was memorable to to all of those guys. They had just been on a mountainside and Jesus was teaching. There was a huge crowd that followed. We'll see in verse 10 that it says, John says 5,000 people were there. We know from the other gospels, they add that it was plus men and women. So people estimate a minimum of 10,000 people were there. That's a huge crowd. Can you imagine 10,000? Um, that's a really big crowd. Pat, remember when we were on the hill, traditionally where that was? I hadn't even thought about imagining 10,000 people. I mean, it would have been a huge crowd that was there. And um, if you don't know the story, they've been listening to Jesus all day, and it's getting time to eat, and they have no food. I'm a person that I need to see things visually. You know that. Um, it's important for me to kind of picture something. So 10,000 can be kind of meaningless number. Um, I'm sure most of us have been in a white auditorium, to watch a basketball game or a graduation? Has pretty much everybody been in there at least once? Okay, if that thing is totally full, that's 5,000 people. So imagine two of those. Here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine that we're with Jesus and we're out in the Flint Hills in the middle of nowhere. We've all had to walk there. We're 30 miles from the closest town. And there's like two William White auditoriums built out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know why they would be there, but they're there. Jesus is holding a conference. He's speaking in one. He's doing a video cast to the second one. So you've got 10,000 people out there. It's a bunch of Baptists, and you know Baptists love to eat. That's what I hear, right? <laughs> bunch of Baptists are attending. And he gets through the day, and it comes supper time, and they realize that nobody came prepared. There's no food. And again, 30 miles from the closest town, nobody has a car. And, you know, how are you going to take care of it? So that's kind of where they found themselves. It was very much an impossible situation. So in John 6, I want to start with verse 1. Verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. 
Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he, asked, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy f- bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew what he had in mind and what he was going to do. And I want to stop there for a second because um, John's the only one who adds this detail, and it's really significant. It jumps out at me, um, this eye of testing, because it sounds negative. When you read that, don't you like, that's kind of negative. You said this to test him. Um, Pat's a teacher, and I'm told that when a good teacher gives a test, that it is intended not to set up the student for failure, but a test is intended to set up the student for success, that that's the whole purpose of a test. Um, it's, it's a stepping stone to growth. It's not, it's not an obstacle to getting somewhere. It's actually to help you get to where you need to go, that that's what a test is for. Um, when God does a test, he doesn't need to know what's in our heart, Right? We just read in John chapter 2 that it said Jesus knew what was in the heart of everyone. So a te- he doesn't need to give us a test so he can see what's in our heart. When God gives a test or Jesus is giving a test, what he's doing is he's wanting us, this is what a teacher does, wanting us to know where, where we are, where I need to grow, where I need to improve. It gives me a sense of, of where I'm standing so, um, so that we can make mid-course corrections. Tests are intended by God to be a pathway of progress. That's what a test is for. It's a pathway to progress. And that's why Eugene Peterson, I think, correctly translate this. He said this to stretch Philip's faith. He said it to stretch his faith. So I think knowing well the impossibility of the situation, Jesus is going to use this as a tool, as a growth opportunity to his followers. So back to verse 5. Back to verse 5. Look at the question that Jesus asked Philip. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? The question he asked Philip is, where, right? Look at Philip's answer in verse 7. It would take more than half a year's wages, or um, it's eight months' wages, to buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. So Jesus asked the where question. He asked where, and what's the answer that Philip gives? Does, it, does Philip give a where answer? No, he gives a what answer, Right? Um, Jesus wants to know, where do we get bread? Philip says, says over half a year's wages. Um, people who know me know that nothing drives me more crazy than when I ask one question and I get a totally different answer from what I'm asking. So it's a good thing that Jesus, that it wasn't me that was with Philip that day. So that's his answer. Um, but here's what I want to do. I want you to look at verses 8 and 9. I want you to see Jesus' answer to that question, to the where question. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves, two small fish. That's his answer to the question. At least he has something concrete. Instead of like, it's going to take more than half year's wages, at least he has something concrete. But, I mean, tell me, are either of these real answers to the problem? Are any of these real solutions? Do any of these, do Peter or Philip believe that this is the solution to their problem? Do either of them think that? I mean, we know they don't, right? I mean, look at their assessment. In verse 7, Philip, when he says it would take more than half a year's wages, and then his assessment is for each one to have a bite, that even if we had that, that would be about the equivalent of $20,000 in today's wages, by the way, what he's giving there. He said even with that, they're only going to each get a bite. It's not going to fill them up or satisfy them. It's his way of saying, Jesus, this is not doable. The odds are stacked against us. Look at Andrew's assessment in verse 9 when he says, here's a boy with these 
five barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So his assessment is the same as Philip. This is impossible. It's undoable. There's, there's nothing that we can do. And you know, there's really good reason for Andrew's pessimism. Because these weren't loaves of bread as we think. Um, this is actually a little bit large. This is what those loaves would have looked like. They would have been flat, very hard, unleavened bread. Um, I think I have a photo of what those look like. Um, so there would have been those. And the fish, when you're thinking of this fish, these aren't like great northern pike or huge giant largemouth bass or giant catfish that you can catch if you go noodling down in Oklahoma. These are like sardines that are actually pretty thin, and they're pickled fish, we know from the Greek, and they're only about six inches long. So you've got two thin little six-inch fish, and you've got loaves like this. Um, so they know that this is not the answer. This will not satisfy, will not fill up people. Again, I'm a visual learner, right? So I'm trying to imagine, what would that look like for us? So again, let's imagine my scenario. We're out in the Flint Hills. Jesus has been teaching. There's 10,000 of us. And it would be like if a little boy came up, and what he had was a KFC value pack, right? With five biscuits and two legs. To me, it's like that's, that's the same thing. And he says, this is all we've got. This is the only food that we have. Here we are, two white auditoriums in the middle of Flint Hills. All we have are five biscuits, two legs. Um, it's like them saying, Jesus, we're in deep weeds. We're in deep weeds. And here's the bottom line to me, is that both Philip and Andrew... Both of them know that they do not have either the resources or the resourcefulness to solve this problem. None of them have the resources or the resourcefulness to solve this problem. So I want to take a minute to look a little more closely at Philip and Andrew and their two responses. Well, they have two different answers. One guy says it's going to take more, about eight months wages. The other guy says all we have is this food from this little boy. I really want you to see that both of them are thinking really in terms, the answers that they're coming up to his question is they're thinking in terms of their pocketbook and their plans. That we don't have enough in the pocketbook, we don't have enough plans to be able to get this done. They both provide what answers to his where question. He asks a where question and they give a what answer. And then they both add a how assessment, like how far will this go? That's not enough. So to his where question, they're giving what, they're responding with what questions and how questions. And they both came up with the wrong answer to his question because both of them were asking the wrong questions. To his where, they were asking what and how. What and how. Which I think is what we do so much. Right? What and how. So in that book, The Question Behind the Questions, John Miller says... We've got to learn to ask new sets of questions and better questions because the answers we get come from the questions we ask. I just love that idea. And so we see both of them asking these what and how questions. And I want you to know that by asking what, it automatically moved them to things like their portfolio and their pocketbook. When they ask the what, it's moving them to think in terms um, of money is what it's moving them to think of. And by asking the how question, it automatically moved them to think about their own plans and their own programs. It asked them to think about what are the methods? How are we going to get this done? That those questions automatically moved them into that kind of thinking. And what they knew is, is both their pocketbook and their plans were insufficient, couldn't take care of the problem. Philip and Andrew, I think, only saw three things. They saw the, they saw the current situation they were in. They saw the reality of the situation, and they saw the impossibility of solving this problem. 
because they forgot how big God is. And so they became convinced, I think like all 12 probably, of what could not be instead of what could be. Um, I'm just curious for you, I mean, looking at these two columns, what's your normal response to an impossible situation? Do you tend to go to your resources? Where do I get the resources to solve this? Or do you tend to focus on resourcefulness? Like, what? I've got to plan my way out of this. I've got to do something. I've got to figure out a plan. I'm really curious, which of those two do you, do you tend to fall in? Or maybe you'd say, I tend to do both of those things, just like these guys do. So let's look at the answer, a Jesus answer. Let's look at verse 10. So Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. They sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Let nothing be wasted. So we're told he took the five loaves, the two fish, he gave thanks, he blessed it, he gave it to the twelve and had the twelve distribute it, which I really love. He could have rained down bread from heaven like manna in the Old Testament, right? But he wanted to involve them because I think he wanted them to touch it, to feel it, to learn a lesson from it. He wanted, um, because I really feel like this miracle was primarily for their benefit. Um, And it says they ate and had enough to eat. The Greek just means to have one's fill, to be filled up. The other three gospels say that the people were satisfied. Um, I can imagine there were college guys there, right, Ian? College guys, and they're like, uh, while they're eating and everybody's kind of getting full, they're like, hey, yo, Pete, could we have like, uh, could we have a few more of those legs and some of those biscuits over here? And we're a little bit thirsty. Could you throw some Mountain Dew in? Could you see if Jesus could throw that in, right? But even the college guys, even the young men, everybody got filled up and satisfied. Um, Some translations say that they had as much as they wanted. And so afterwards, like verse 13, so they gathered them. So it says that they had, um, he said, gather the pieces that are left over in 12, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had not eaten. So again, he involves them. They not only pass it out, but he has them collect it. He has them pick it up. Because I think he wants them to have a first-hand, hands-on, life-altering experience of seeing themselves the result of this miracle that Jesus did. That not only were people satisfied, but there was extra that was left over. That, that they would really get it. That they would get what he's about and the kind of person he was. Um, I really think he wanted this miracle embedded in their souls. So that's why they're, each of them individually, painstakingly, is gathering all the leftovers, filling up their own basket... He's wanting them to be thinking about and connecting the thing that he has done with who he is. And that Jesus is simply not enough, that he's more than enough. That's what I love about this. He didn't just meet the need, he went way above and beyond the need. They were not only filled up and satisfied, but they had leftovers. That Jesus not only did the impossible, but he went and did above and beyond what they could even imagine. They couldn't even imagine him even feeding them, much less having leftovers. So I want you to see what happens the next day. Jesus left that place at night. He crossed the sea to another spot. And the next day, the crowds followed him. They wanted to find him. And so look at verse 25. And here's what verse 25 says. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. 
Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Skip to 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. And then Jesus declared this. It's so significant. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. So the crowd, he's saying, if you want a full and meaningful life, it can only be found in me. I'm your heart's deepest hunger. I'm the person, the one that you really long for. But I also want you to think, I think when he says, I'm the bread of life, it just happened on the heels of this miracle, that he may have had been thinking on multiple levels of the meaning. And it wouldn't surprise me, even if he's saying that, if he looks over at his, his 12, maybe they're standing off to the side. And, and part of what he's communicating is, you remember yesterday, that impossible situation with not enough bread? I want you to know, I am the bread of life. I want that sentence to sink in. I am the bread of life. When you find yourself in an impossible situation, I am the provision. I am the one who meets the need. I'm the person that can take care of that. When you need bread, I'm the bread. I'm the bread. And I think they had it backwards like often I think I know I do. That when I find myself in impossible situations, I immediately start thinking of my own resources and my own resourcefulness. I start looking into my pocket what I've got. I start looking at my plans, what I can do to fix the situation. I mean, I think we do that so much. We look at our money and our methods. And I think Jesus tries over and over and over again in his ministry to get them to think, not in terms of their pocketbook, not in terms of their plans, but in terms of him who is a person. He's wanting them to think in terms of a person. So in the midst, here's what I would say. In the midst of the impossible, we should not think in terms of my portfolio, my pocketbook, not in terms of a program or a plan, but in terms of a person. Not my money or my method, but what I should think about is the man. I should think about the man. Um, I tell people this all the time, and you guys know this to be true. The Bible does not offer us religion. It offers us a relationship. The Bible is not primarily about principles. It is about a person, Jesus Christ, right? That's what the Bible is about. It's about a person. When Jesus was asked, what's the way to heaven by Thomas? He said, I am the way. When he's asked, when, he, when Lazarus dies and he shows up to Martha and he says, he will live again. And she says, I know on the last day he will rise again. He says, you don't get it. I am the resurrection and the life. If people asked him, who's the truth or where's the truth or what's the truth? He would say, I am the truth. Or where's the door? What's the door to heaven to relationship with God? In John 10, I am the door. He was constantly moving them from principle to a person. That's what he was about. And so when faced with this impossibility of feeding 10,000, when he said where, and they answered with a what or a how, what he really wanted them to think about was a who, was a who, and that was himself, a person. I, you need bread, I am the bread of life. I'm the one that can provide it. So when Jesus asked that where question, the answer that I think he was seeking, the thing that I think he wanted Peter, Philip and Andrew to do was to turn to him and say, where? I know where. You. You're the where. You're the one. You're the only one that can get us out of this impossible situation. 
It's not possible with me, Jesus, but it's possible with you because I've seen you do so many impossible things. You are the answer to your question. When you say where, the answer is you. It's you. Again, not about our plans, our programs, or our portfolio, or our possessions. It's about a person, Jesus. So my big question is, when I read this story, is did they get it? So I want you to flip back to Mark chapter 8. Flip back to Mark chapter 8. We're going to go backwards to Mark, to his gospel. Mark chapter 8. And we're going to ask the question, did they get it? Did they get this lesson? Did they leave um, understanding that he was the bread of life, that he was the answer to the question? And what we find in Mark 8 is days after feeding the 5,000, that he also fed 4,000 on Gentile territory in Decapolis. We talked about that a few months ago. And look at verse 13 of Mark 8. It says, then he left them, he left the crowd, he got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. And let me just insert, he's in the boat with the 12, okay? The 12 who just saw all of this. So back to verse 14, the disciples, they had forgotten to bring, what did they forget to bring? Bread, except for one loaf, okay? So they've got one of these with them. They've got one loaf they had in the boat. And they're kind of like panicking. They're kind of like, dude, Peter, Peter, Aren't you the bread guy? Weren't you supposed to bring the bread? And Peter's like, no, Matthew's in charge of the bread. And they're like, like who, how come nobody brought bread? And so they're, they're like, what's going on? We don't have enough bread. This is not enough for 12 grown men. And then Jesus in verse 15 says, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Um, that being those who saw Jesus' miracles, but they never connected the miracles with the person of Jesus. So he says, be careful of of them. And then verse 16, they discussed this with one another and they said, it's because we have no bread. That's why he just said that, because we have no bread. He's not happy. So aware of their discussion, Jesus asked him, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you, not have, do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, five loaves for 5,000, would you tell me how many basketfuls a pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? And I think it's like he's saying to them, do you not really get it that I am the bread of life? I'm the bread of life. You just saw two huge miracles. You heard me talk about being the bread of life. We're in here. You're worried about having one loaf and you're fighting about it, and you're worried about it, do you not understand who I am? What it reminds me of and what it makes me think of is they're fighting about one little bread of loaf that they have in the boat because it's not enough. And in my mind, um, like Jesus is this huge, there's this huge giant loaf of bread sitting in the boat named Jesus, and they're having this conversation. And they can't see the real bread of life because they're worried about the one loaf of bread. I mean, it's almost comical. But how often do we do that? How often do I do that? So, Kylie, you can come on up. How often do we, having seen God provide over and over again, that we still, um, we still don't get it? And then we come to a new impossible situation and still he's saying, hey, where, 
hoping that we'll say, well, the answer to that is the who, it's you. And we just want to know the what and the how, and we can't figure it out, and we panic. So let me briefly finish the story of my house, of our house. Um, man, this is pretty emotional. There were two guys in this church who knew that we needed a house. They kind of knew our financial situation. And unaware to me, they had a meeting on a Saturday morning. They got together, and they, they both felt... One of them called and said, I just want to meet. Didn't even know, the other guy didn't know what it was about. And when they got together, he just said, I feel led by the Lord that we should raise some money to help the Forsyths get a house. And the other guy said, you know, I've been feeling that too. I'm glad that we got together. And they thought and they prayed and they said, why don't we, we're going to ask, let's ask some individuals, let's make a list of people we're going to ask. And let's, let's pray and decide on an amount that we think God wants us to ask. And they prayed, they met or talked again a week later, and the amount they came up with is they were going to ask uh, 5000 That's a lot of money. They were going to ask 5000 for some from individuals. So they um, started calling some people and saying, hey, this is the Forsyth need, and some people started responding. They called one family, uh, who's a family in this church, and they said, they explained the situation. We feel led to ask for 5000 And they said, you know what? We mailed a check for $5,000 to their ministry last week because we felt like God was asking us to do that. And then even cooler, I mean, the whole thing was cool, but we had a family in Hayes, Kansas, who had supported us for many years. And probably five years before this event had happened, they had told us, we have set some money aside. Someday you're going to need to get your own house. We know you rent. We've set some money aside, and when it comes time to buy a house, you let us know, and we're going to send that to you. And I remembered they had said that, and so I called out to Hayes, and I talked to Tom, and I said, Tom, you said when we're going to buy a house, when it's time to let you know. And he said, okay. He said, we'll write the check to you guys and send it off to you. He said, would you like to know how much God laid on our hearts those many years ago? I said, sure. And guess what he said? Five thousand dollars so the answer to our possible situation it wasn't my resources our resources we didn't have them it wasn't our resourcefulness there was no way we could think our way and plan our way into a house the answer was jesus the bread of life the one that when i face an impossible situation the one who's the only one that can take care of it, that when something to me looks impossible, that really it's impossible. That sounds really corny, but I think there's a lot of truth in that. So here's what I want you to go home with today. The next time you find yourself in an impossible situation, insurmountable odds, it looks like there's no way something can happen. You can get out of something, whatever it is. Your initial gut reaction is going to be negative, and it's going to be like asking questions like what and how and why. And I understand it. That's my normal first reaction. And I want to challenge you to pause for a minute and just to say, you know what? I need to ask a better question because if I ask a better question, I'll get a better answer than from a what or a how or a why. And the question I need to ask is, is who? Who is the person that can step into this and solve it when I can't? And the answer to that question will always be what? Jesus. Very good. Whoever said that. Is that Sam? Jesus. He is the only one that's enough. So, I really want to challenge you the next time you're in possibility to keep this image of bread in your mind. Um, 
The question is not what or how. The right question is who. Um, and the answer to that is always a person. And so I know there are some people here today, so I've got this bread. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I just want you, if you don't mind, close your eyes. Um, I want you to think about, I don't know, if you're in a, an impossible situation right now. Not everybody is, but if you are, um, I just want you to think about that. What is that insurmountable mountain? What is that great impossibility that you're facing? And I really want to challenge you to seek the Lord for that and to leave it with him. Alfred Smith in a song called Got Any Rivers wrote this. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you cannot tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does things others cannot do. So I just wonder if there's anybody here this morning that's, that's facing an impossible thing. Business, family, financial, health, I don't know. But you're facing an impossible situation. You see no way through with your own resources and your own resourcefulness. Um, if that's you, you can open your eyes. I just want to challenge you. If that's you, um, while we worship with a final song, um, I just find it so helpful to have physical, concrete things for me as reminders. I just want to challenge you to come up. We've got some sticky notes up here. If you could just write one word, whatever that impossibility is, that challenge, just write one word that represents it. Stick it on the wood. Pray over it. And say, Jesus, I've been asking a lot of what and how and why, and I just need to ask the who, which points me to you, and I'm needing you to come and step into this, and I'm needing to trust you. Help me put my focus on you and not on the situation. So if that's you, I just invite you to come up, write the word, stick it on there, pray over it, and then grab one of these loaves and take it home. Put it somewhere significant. Um, when I first encountered this passage and thought about this many years ago, I, I had a loaf that I kept on my desk and kept praying for many years for that. And finally in 2011, my father came to faith in Jesus. The thing I thought would never happen, that loaf still sits on my desk at home as a memorial to the God who does the impossible. So if, if that's you today, during worship, I just invite you to come up. Worship um, together, just take this time as we're singing this song, just to think about... Um, how God is that way maker for us. Um, sometimes I can think of times in my life where um, I haven't understood exactly what he's going to do, but sometimes you just have to choose to trust, choose to believe until um, you begin to see the ways that he's working. You are here moving in our midst. Worship you, I worship you. You are here working in this 
darkness keeping light in the darkness my god and that is who you are you are a way maker miracle worker promise keeper light in the darkness my god and that is who you are you are here touching every stop working you never stop you never stop working even when i don't see that you're working even when i don't feel that you're working you never stop you never stop working you never stop you never stop working even when i don't see that you're working even when i don't feel that you're working you never stop you never stop working you never stop stop working even when I don't see that you're working even when I don't feel that you're working you never stop you never stop working you never stop you never stop working way maker miracle worker promise keeper light in the darkness my God that is who Oh, you are, that is 
escaper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Amen. Can we say amen to that? All right, let's pray. Father, Jesus, it is so, so tempting whenever those impossibilities come that we start asking like the what and the how and the why. I pray that you would help direct us to the, to the who, to you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the reminder that you are the bread of life and that whenever we need provision in any way, that you're the answer, that we are to look to you. So, Lord, help us this week to live as people with faith and hope in that and that we are putting our trust in you and that people would see evidence in our life that there's something different about us, that there's a hope that they don't understand, um, and that is that we trust in a person that we know is at work on our behalf and who causes all things to work for our good. And so we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So 12, you're sent this week to live as people of hope who follow a person and live that hope in, out in your daily life. So let's go trusting in him. You are sent.